regionally? What is the ethos behind the plan? The whole idea of regionally is actually trying to, I suppose, put back some of the financial plumbing or infrastructure which should be there. For those who are sad of mind like me, and I'm sure not like you, uh, back in 1945, there were actually 45 local stock exchanges in Britain, most of which were absolutely useless. In fact, those that weren't weren't much better either. They've all been shut down. Why? Because they were run by stockbrokers who find it difficult running anything, including the 100 meter dash. Yes, I have to admit the fact, yes, I was a stockbroker. And so pompous gits and red braces, which sadly was also usually me, they seem to forget what the primary purpose of a stock exchange was, which was to raise capital for business. The secondary issue is to buy and sell shares. So they forgot about the first one and focused on the second one, buying and selling shares. The problem is, if you've got local companies, small companies in the regions, they don't trade their shares very much. So if you don't trade their shares very much, silly gits and red braces don't earn much money. So really what I've wanted to try and do is to actually not go back to stock exchanges run rather inefficiently, but find a mechanism whereby regional businesses can actually raise money in the regions for themselves and not have to go via London, which is expensive, all the charges are that much higher, and slower. And to give you a good example, I came across uh, a pension fund actually in Birmingham uh, for a local authority. And this local pension fund was invested via a London fund manager, perfectly well, nothing wrong with it. But I asked, so how much money actually is invested in, say, the West Midlands or Birmingham? And the answer was, well, none. Well, surely there should be a mechanism whereby some of that money, not all of it, should be invested locally in supporting local businesses. So the idea was, could you actually set up local centres whereby you could have a list of those businesses of the right calibre, not startups, these are businesses already there, businesses looking to grow and to fund themselves. There's always a gap which is difficult to fund between half a million and seven to ten million and find a way of being able to finance that through issuing shares or debt and putting together investors, not necessarily in the region, could be anywhere, but with these local businesses and making sure the calibre of business is the right type, right, the right level. And so that was the concept. And so we tried it out and looked at it for about 18 months or so and to see if there was any demand for it. And the answer is, there's a huge demand because people won't be able to have capital. And now, of course, add in what happens with COVID and things like that and the, the effect of the economic heart attack that we've had. The demand and need for more capital to try and grow has never been more important. But equally, it's never been more important also to make sure you don't find yourself investing in a series of dog companies or zombies which frankly should have been killed a long time ago, but the banks hadn't got the capital to do so, and finding yourself actually supporting those. So you've got to be very picky indeed. So if we can put back some of that plumbing, that'll be good for the community, good in terms of the economy, good for those companies, and hopefully good for the investors as well. So that's the idea. Well, you're looking at bringing together these companies. Obviously, you're talking about companies of a certain size if we're talking between half a million and, and 10 million. First of all, though, that's a perennial gap in corporate funding, isn't it? That's not something new. It's always been there. You're right, because that gap has all sorts of dramatic terms they love to give it. You know, the chasm of death. Well, no, all it is is it's too small to be big and it's too big to be small. So little angel investors who wanted to put in a few uh, tens of thousands of pounds, that doesn't really help very much. But equally, private equity and people like that, well, they want something which is probably chunkier. The other issue relating to this 
is actually making sure, therefore, you're trying to uh, target not just small investors, in fact, not small private investors, but actually professional investors. Those people who actually are willing to sign a document to say, I'm willing to take a high level of risk. So it means you're excluding widows and orphans, I think, for very good reasons. But also making sure that you're getting away from some of the areas which I dislike in the city, which is some of the private equity firms and venture capital firms who often sort of deal junkies who seem much happier to try and actually make money on their fees and on a short-term basis. So three years if, it, if they can, five years if they've cocked it up. <laughs> so really what we want to be able to say is, what's the normal investment period for shares? And the answer is, it's normally five to seven years. So give companies the ability to get capital, which is longer term, which is investors which suit their needs. Because again, all too often, companies come to the market or find shareholders, which are just going to give them the money. Well, that's fine as far as it goes. But don't you actually want shareholders which help the strategy of the business? So are they staff, management, members of the family for inheritance or things like that? Are they suppliers or even are they consumers or someone further down the food chain? Do you want to have them as part of the business? And certainly since uh, the COVID, what you've found is a lot more businesses now reducing their supply lines and they want to have much more connection with local suppliers, local consumers. And if they can link together, not lock them in, but link together with uh, shareholders uh, or debt holders or something like that, then it creates a longer term structure and hopefully increases their value. So we're looking at professional investors. We're looking at fairly large, small companies, sort of medium-sized companies. How are you going to vet the companies to be able to say to people, these are investable? Uh, Robin, absolutely spot-on question, because uh, there are a lot of companies looking for money, uh, but how many of them are absolutely rubbish companies? And the answer is, you need to make sure there's proper due diligence. And all that means is English, in English is proper checking, that these are investable businesses that have a proper value, they're telling the truth in their, in their facilities, in their report and accounts, the directors haven't been crossed off and are seen to be good people, and so proper validation. Now, who does that? Well, two levels. One, any company that we would actually see coming to us as a platform would have a corporate advisor. Now, again, this would normally go via London, so corporate advisors cover pretty high cost. What you'll find in the regions is there are a few really good quality regional accountants and sometimes solicitors um, who have a corporate advice team as well. And they get frustrated because their clients get to a certain size, want to raise money, and they probably go to London. So they lose the long-term relationship with the company and, of course, the individuals themselves. That's their long-term income. So now we can say, actually, you're going to hang on to this business and to these people. You carry on your corporate advice. Now, you, what we want you to do is do the due diligence to make sure these are properly reported businesses and ones which are investable. They may even have, actually, because they're the sort of businesses they are, often have the investors themselves because they often have a wealth management arm as well. So it's in their interest to do proper due diligence. Then they, when they come to us, we do a secondary vetting to make sure it's the right type of business. So you can try and maintain the quality. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be some mistakes in there. There are bound to be at some stage but the due diligence can restrict it. So the ability to say, no, this is not suitable, not just for us as a platform, but not suitable for investors either. How's the platform going to work in practice? Companies obviously looking around for sources of money are going to say, yeah. ah, let's try that. But you've yeah. also got to bring in the investors as well. So how does the platform work? 
Well, the platform, very simply, as far as the outside world looks at, will be effectively a list of companies, almost like looking at a list of companies on, the, on a stock exchange, which will, there are those companies, there are the recent share prices they'd see. Now, companies who are wishing, wishing to raise money would contact regionally, and they may go via their corporate advisor or come to us directly. And once they are seen to be investable, uh, we then make sure they've got effectively a dashboard. And on that dashboard, they can see who their potential investors are, who their investors actually are going to be, and how much they need and how much is actually being drawn down so they can keep control of it. The advisors would also have a similar dashboard showing which companies they're managing and how far through the system. And then the investors themselves would have a dashboard showing what they've invested in, how it's actually doing, list of all their other investments as well. So it puts them in control. And in due course, you could actually add in portfolios they may hold elsewhere, but that's not there in the first stage. What we haven't done is wasted hundreds of thousands of pounds on building a platform. Platforms are slightly sort of the fashion fad. And as you know, this year's fashion fad is next year's tank top, as I only have to look at my cupboard to have a look at. And of course, there are more platforms in this country than network rail. So what we've done is actually take an existing platform, which has got other uses, and we've just merely adjusted that for our own needs. So it's tried and tested, but we can then add on the nice bits, the dashboards, the controls. And so it means, therefore, that when companies want to get onto that secondary stage of having their shares traded, first of all, the companies can decide when they want to trade their shares. As long as they tell their investors in advance, that's fine. It may be, look, this is a three-year investment or a five-year investment. We'll open a window for share trading in, say, two years' time or whatever it happens to be. Uh, they're unlikely to be trading every single day. But it means, therefore, not having a market maker or a stockbroker, you literally do it on a matched order basis. So someone puts up an order, I want to sell these shares at that price. Someone then puts up an order, I want to buy these shares at that price. And they can match together or they can work out a price. That means you don't have to go through the costs that you see on the likes of AIM and other exchanges of trying to maintain a price the entire time, which of course in small companies is completely fictitious. If the price is only what someone's gonna pay and you won't know that until someone's actually gonna pay it. So it's a much simpler process which actually provides a simple low cost mechanism for people to raise money, uh, be able to use that money and investors to come in and to be able to transact their shares when they want to. Well, I always tell people that something is worth what another person will pay for it, and you don't necessarily know what that's going to be until they pay it. You've done some excellent demonstrations in the past showing how stupid people will invest in the things such as the uh, uh, South Sea bubble and how much will people will pay for that. And the answer is they paid an awful lot for something that was a bubble. Finally, then, is regionally going to be national or is it going to be local across specific regions? It's actually, it will be operating in different regions, but accessible nationally. So it's marketed locally and it operates locally, but the actual structure for the processing is all done centrally, not there's a great deal of processing to do. So we'll have a low cost center of operations, which we're likely to actually have it operating out of Newcastle, but then it's actually marketed locally in different regions. And that's starting in the West Midlands, and it's starting also in the Southwest, not by great strategy on our part, it's purely by demand. People have said, I want to raise this money from here. And then also the other area is the Northwest up in Lancashire. What I find fascinating is the investment demand also isn't necessarily coming from those regions. It's other people, we've got one example, 
someone who owns a chain of pubs up in the northwest strategically wants to invest in outlets in the southwest. So actually, you, what you've got is local money from the northwest going into the southwest. And, and not going the, via London. And not going via London. And of course, the regions like it, and I want them to raise their flag and say, look, we've got people investing in the West Midlands, investing in Lancashire. And if there seem to be success, you know what happens? Other businesses follow or other capital follows. And the trouble is at the moment, if you want to invest in a local business, you can't. So at least what we're doing is putting the plumbing in place to enable people to do it. And then we can take it from there and make it, you know, not more sophisticated, but make sure more people are aware of it. And at times like this, where we're trying to get the economy going again, I think it's actually purely by chance, I have to say, extremely well-timed.